0: All right, hello. Um, welcome to today's session. Um, this is the session, how did we get here and where are we going? And uh, before we start, I'll introduce myself. I'm Francis Foley, and I work for an organization called Compass. We're a kind of progressive think tank campaigning organization who works to build alliances across the progressive left. Um, a quick shout out to our sponsor today, which is Soundings, um, Journal of Politics and Culture. And you can find them outside Um, They have a little stall and they have back coffees for a fiver, which I think is quids in. Soundings is great. So um, check them out. And today we've got what I think to be a pretty important, uh, crucial session, which kind of gets to the heart of where we are, which is about narrative. So before we start, I'm going to tell you guys a little story. So way back when there was a Labour government, this Labour government taxed and taxed and spent and spent and it taxed so much uh, it was able to build schools and hospitals and everything looked dandy. But, come the uh, credit crunch, Labour crashed the car in the economy and they failed to, re- to mend the roof while the sun was shining, which meant that our children will be stuck with debt and debt for years and years and years. So now's the time for us to get back on track with a long-term economic plan. We've got to cut the deficit and we will do that soon by tightening our belts We've got to all pull together on this one because the nation is like a household. And if you uh, spend more than you bring in, then of course you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. And that's where labour left us. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we're going to cut back on the necessities. We've all got to pull together. We're going to incentivise rich, the rich to earn more because this nation is made up of takers and makers. And we want those makers to feel that they can go out there and earn some money. So does this story sound familiar? And was it successful? (laughs) Yeah. So this is a pretty persuasive story. And um, around the 2015 general election, I don't know if anybody remembers that fateful morning. (laughs) It was one of my first political experiences of feeling hope and the danger of hope uh, to then the crushingness of despair in 2015. And that was largely... To do with the result of that successful narrative. This narrative um, had many important and crucial elements which helped the Tories win. It was persuasive, it was boringly, boringly repetitive, it came out again and again, it built on the history of the Tories, it built on their fundamental principles and values about economic freedom and about the state not interfering and about cutting down on, where it, on state inefficiencies. And it struck people's emotions. It made it relevant for people's everyday lives. People understand what it's like to have a household budget and to try and balance out their incoming and their outgoings. And also, it was quite powerful. It spoke to stability. Gave people, it gave people the idea that there was a plan, that we knew where we were going. After the tumult and chaos of the credit crunch, you had someone with a steady hand on the tiller. Now, this is partly the success of that narrative, is partly where we are where we are. And on the flip side of that, it's also the failure of the left to respond to that narrative. But it's not like the left doesn't have a powerful history on which it can draw, and it doesn't, it's not like it doesn't have urgent and important things to say about now, and it's not like it doesn't have people like you guys who are willing to go out and make that message clear and relevant and applicable. So the session today is about how we build that kind of narrative, what particular lessons we draw on from history, and what particular parts of our history do we want to make resonant for people now. But also, it's about speaking beyond the labor circles, beyond the people in this room who would come to a labor event, um, and even beyond labor heartlands to speak to people who feel that labor's not always been on their side, or labor's not always the party for them. So uh, I'm gonna introduce our speakers. But before I do that, I'm just going to um, give you guys a little challenge. So whilst I'm introducing our speakers, you can be thinking about what two lines of a story you might tell about Labour now. So it doesn't have to be as florid and as kind of boringly repetitive as the Tories was. But think about a couple of lines that you would say about what Labour's message is right now in 2018. And in a second, we're going to take five or six of those from the floor. But before I do... Um, I'm going to introduce our panel, so today uh, we have Jerry McGilbert, he's the Professor of Culture and Political Theory at the University of East London, and there's a little shout out, he also sits on Commerce Management Committee. Um, we have Alan Finlinton who's a Professor of Political and Social Theory at the University of East Anglia, and we have Melissa Benn, who's Founder of Local Schools Network um, and Chair of Comprehensive Future. She's written nine books. And one of which, a little plug, is here today. Um, Life Lessons, the case for a national education service, which is highly relevant. She's going to be speaking about that as well. So I hope you've used that one minute to kind of gird your loins and get together a really convincing narrative. So if we have the roving mic up, up, up there. Oh, yeah. And, of course, as Jeremy said, for those of you who weren't in the room, Clive, unfortunately, can't make it today. Um, and he sends his apologies. But... Um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of you can imagine the sort of things Clive would have said. He would have been very good. <laughs> um, so if we have the roving mic at the back there, if we could get um, a couple of people's lines, and they don't have to be full stories, but what kind of small snippets of narrative do you think should be involved in, what, in Labour's message today? What kind of little stories could Labour tell about 2018? If no one puts up their hand. We are in deep trouble. <laughs> All right, we've got one gentleman at the back here.
1: I would say, what have we achieved already? I mean, does anybody talk about the deficit anymore? Five years, we had nothing but deficit, 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 deficit. Suddenly, Jeremy Corbyn said, the deficit doesn't matter. It's a political choice. It's not an economic necessity. And suddenly they said, oh, yeah, we've done that.
0: So moving away from the Tories' narratives, moving away from well, encountering the, we are, the deficit. We are,
1: the whole point is, if we're able to impose our narrative, we have to get rid of the Tory narrative. And Jeremy Corbyn has done that. Does anybody? What about this public sector pay cap that they were so uh, in love with, that they chortled with glee when they got through the commons after the last election? Does anybody ta- Did anybody talk about the public sector pay cap now? Does anybody suggest that uh, public sector wages should be stacked down to 1%? No, because Jeremy changed the narrative.
0: So a big point about countering the Tory narrative. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um we've got this woman at the front here. Sorry if you could just wait for the mic. Okay. We have loads of money. <laughs> Not us, but yeah, <laughs> you mean yeah, the country has loads of money. Yeah, great one. Anyone else? The woman at the front here. Yeah, so really uh, you know, honing down into the question of inequality which Labour historically has been so good on. Yeah, I think that's a great one. Uh, we've got a woman at the front here. Uh, inequality isn't inevitable, it's a choice and we can make other choices. Inequality is not inevitable, it's a choice and we can make different choices, brilliant one. You want to pass it to the guy behind you? Um, it's just a quick line from John McDonnell last night at the head and
2: he said he'd been accused of having a magic money tree. And he said, yes, he has, he's found it in the Cayman Islands.
0: <laughs> nice, nice one. See, John's already at it, well ahead of us. Um, this gentleman the back here behind the pillar. Um, Some love to the people behind the pillar. Um, yeah, just something about uh,
2: increasing, yeah, like increasing
0: our uh, participation in the economy, like increasing the, or like democratising the economy. I suppose, but a, a pithier, sexier version of that. <laughs> we'll work on the next. We've got an hour to make it pithy and sexy, but that's really good. Yeah, D- democratizing the economy and sort of democratizing maybe everyday life as well. So we'll come over this side, swing right round here. Nice. Yeah, politics isn't just for the elite; it's for everyone. Um, any more for any more? Man, back there in Joe. We made
3: it. We own it.
0: Nice. Now we're getting pithier and sexier. I'm feeling like, feeling like we're, we can close this session right now. Now we're to the front here. Build power together, take control of our lives. Nice. Build power together, take control of our lives. Building on quite a successful recent slogan there, but a little bit of a, an update. Nice. We'll take one more. This gentleman out here. Sorry, I'm making you run around a little bit. We'll settle down in a minute.
1: Uh, it's, it's not a pithy
4: slogan, because I think we're getting towards pithy slogans and the narratives aren't necessarily pithy slogans. Absolutely, And I think dead what right. we've got to do is something that, um, m- you know, I can't do it, but some narrative that makes clear that the austerity that the Tories introduced was actually the completely wrong answer to the problems we
1: had at the time. I don't know how you formulate it, in a narrative for that, I think, what we need to do.
0: I think that's dead right. And I did one, you know, I specifically asked for lines of story not slogans. I mean, slogans are useful, but and if you can distill your story down into slogans, that's good. But as I said at the beginning, you know, the Tories came at this from many different angles. They had lots of different things to say, but it was all cohe- one part of uh, each part, was made up a coherent story, and that's kind of what we're looking for today. So I'm going to pass over to my panel now. I'm going to be quite strict on time. So each of you have 10 minutes, um, and. Yeah, We'll start maybe with Alan and then we can move along the panel and then hopefully that gives us enough time at the end to have a discussion because I can clearly hear already that lots of you have really good ideas at this. We want to get those involved. So, Alan, over to you.
5: So, thanks very much uh, for introducing me and thanks to everyone for coming. Um, In Clive's absence, Clive is my MP, so in Clive's absence I shall be officially representing what Alan Partridge did not call the People's Republic of Norwich. Uh, So, I want to Start this by doing something that might seem sort of a bit perverse in the context. I want to talk not about the narrative that Labour and the left might have, but about the narrative that we're opposing the narrative of uh, not just the centrist part of politics or the conservative right, but the far right. Because if you want to formulate a narrative in politics, you have to think about the narratives that you're also countering. And I think there is a narrative which is not quite the same as the one that Francis was summarising earlier that sort of unites parts of the Conservative Party with parts of UKIP and further out to the fringes of the right that I think is being quite successful in various parts of the country and in various communities in the country as a way of explaining what's happened in the country over the last 40 or 50 years. And it isn't always visible. Because it's a narrative that you particularly find spread around online between different far right groups and echoed and intimated at by columnists in right wing newspapers and by right wing conservatives. So we have to think about what that narrative is and have that in mind when we're formulating our counter narrative. We have to know what we're refuting as well as what we're trying to affirm. So I'm going to present a sort of unified version of an argument that is being put across the right. Not always in quite so unified and uniform a way, but I think you're going to recognise parts of it as things you might have heard coming either from the kind of Tommy Robinson far right or from parts of the Conservative Party. And the way that narrative works is, first of all, is it presents a series of claims about class. It is a kind of class analysis. It uses the language of class, very explicitly and very frequently, it uses the language of the working class, but it talks about the working class in ways that gives it very distinct kinds of connotations. It uses working class not in the way we might use it in the labour movement, but to try and draw an equivalence to connect different kinds of occupational groups, but also people from rural and small towns. And it emphasises the cultural aspects of that particular class experience over the economic ones to try and describe a set of values, to describe a way of life. And in certain elements, it also ethnicises that. So it's about the white working class. So it defines a particular sense of a, of a community that is very different from the way we might define it, but that is recognisable to many people. And it connects that argument about the white working class to a story about the ruling class. But again, it's a different story from the one we might tell in the labour movement. Because what it does is it, it describes the ruling class not so much as the one which is economically exploiting people but as one which is dominating people politically and through the power of the state, wanting to control people's lives, perhaps even wanting to get rid of certain kinds of people. So The crucial part of that kind of far-right narrative, then, is that the ruling class isn't really the same as the capitalist class. The ruling class is what sociologists in the 70s particularly would have called the new class. It's a class of technocrats and bureaucrats, intellectuals, experts, and other people who kind of possess knowledge and use that knowledge or that information to exercise social power. So the narrative goes that since the kind of 70s or maybe even earlier, that class is the one that's been rising to power the class of experts, technocrats, intellectuals, and experts. And they're the ones who have professionalized politics as politicians or as advisors, as spin doctors. They're the ones who are professional government bureaucrats or people who work in the quangos. They're also the people who work in the media, people who work in the universities. And the claim that is made is that those people have captured political, state, media power, and they're using it to further their own interests, to feather their own nests, and to dominate others. They're using the state, for example, to access resources for themselves and protect their own employment. So when someone from the right talks about the diversity industry, they're activating that narrative. They're saying there's a bunch of experts, intellectuals using the state to access resources to pay them to do this kind of diversity work so that they can impose their culture and their values upon others. That's also what you hear sometimes if you come across people, you get it in the spectator sometimes talking about cultural Marxists in the universities. There's intellectuals like Jeremy who've been actively trying to subvert people <laughs> and their values. clearly a myth, of course. Going all right. <laughs> going all right. And they are treated in this narrative as kind of simply doing that in order to access resources, get funding and so on. And for that narrative then, I think this is kind of an important thing to recognise, the critique of migration that we're very familiar with in certain forms of racist politics is often connected to this in this particular way. It says actually that class of people they've deliberately encouraged migrants to come in because they want to make more people dependent on them, they can access more resources and because they want to undermine and weaken the culture and values of this particular construction of the working class that they've got. So The politics that then follows from that is that they say, well, you've got to launch an all-out assault on that class. That's what they see Trump as doing, for instance, starving them of resources, not funding the various government agencies that these people use, trying to starve resources from the universities, the schools and so forth, and trying to provoke that class and show that it is actually intolerant and hostile to the interests of ordinary people. So you've got a class analysis, a particular way of constructing who you think is going to be, who counts as being in the working class, and a particular critique of a certain kind of ruling group. We have to understand that's the narrative that's becoming quite dominant on that part of the right. But you also have to understand that it connects itself to what I'm going to call kind of grandly a metaphysics, a kind of deeper philosophy of how the world or how the universe works. And the crucial part of that is it says actually the natural world is one that's full of distinctions, hierarchies. And what's gone wrong is that this class has eroded all that, all those hierarchies. It it believes in this daft idea of equality. We've got to bring back the distinctions that organise and structure society and make it work. We've got to bring back the borders that distinguish between nations and national cultures. We've got to distinguish between races and ethnicities. We've got to bring back the distinctions between men and women and bring all these things back. Then we'll have an ordered, secure society, which can be run in accordance with the so-called laws of nature, and we can overthrow this elite class of intellectuals and experts that have been running things in their own interests and bringing things, everything, to a mess. That's... Now, crucially, what that does is that gives people a certain sense of um, what's gone wrong in the country. So these progressives, these intellectuals have seized control, They've imposed these cultural changes upon us for their own kind of interests. They've allowed traditions of English culture to be eroded and they've allowed these distinctions that are crucial to the organisation of society to be overcome. And if you join this movement, it says, then you can be one of the heroes who saves Western civilisation. You can be one of those people who throws yourself into the fight against the liberals, the elites, the, the migrants, you can bring back your country, you can be a saviour. That's what Tommy Robinson promises you, that sense of heroism and meaningful uh, social action to overturn this incredible enemy that has taken over the state. Make Norfolk great again. Make Norfolk great again, yeah. So the thing to understand, I think, is that this is a narrative. It's not just a narrative, though. In a sense, it's not just a story. It's also proposing a kind of theory. It's also giving people a framework For explaining things to themselves. One that people who believe it can then apply in their daily lives. They can say, oh, yes, I can see that. Here's one of these experts lying to me on television. Here's one of these experts in the university talking about all these kinds of things. So it's not just a narrative, it's also a kind of theory that people can employ and feel they have some kind of insight into the world. It also appeals to real social groups. There are, although it's constructing a certain kind of fantasy idea of the working class, it can appeal to people who can recognise themselves in that kind of story, and it can give people a sense that they have something to do politically, they can respond, whether that's just criticising certain people on the TV or participating in political kind of actions, they can feel like they've got some hand or some grip on the world and some way to respond to it. And I think to understand that this narrative is not a kind of accidental construction, it hasn't merely kind of evolved by happenstance, It's it's a conscious construction developed by thinkers, activists on the right of European and American politics over a long period of time, some of them explicitly drawing, as Jerry mentioned this morning at a different session, some of them drawing on Gramsci, drawing on left-wing theories of how to act culturally and politically to change the ways in which people think about how the world works. So that's the narrative that we have to counter. We have to recognise the power of that narrative, uh, what makes it powerful, and think about how we're going to undermine it, challenge it, or subvert it. Now we can't do that simply by copying it. I don't think reoccupying that language of being anti migration, encouraging nationalism, that kind of position is doomed. It's not going to take over this narrative, that's giving up to that narrative. So we can't do that. But we also can't just say the opposite. We can't just deny it and refute it and say it's not true because that's going to continue, uh, that's going to encourage people to just see that we're not really hearing what it is that they're saying, we're not responding to their narrative, but just blankly opposing it. So what you have to do is have a narrative that is able to connect to people's kind of existential daily experiences that is going to be something that people can draw on and use to apply in their daily lives and explain the situations in which they find themselves, but with a different kind of narrative. So you can't just refute people's experience if they say that they feel there's been decline and loss. You have to connect to that experience of decline and loss, but provide alternative explanations for what that cause is to show that it's not an alliance of elite liberal interests in the universities, but actually it's a different story about the kinds of things you are all just saying, some of you, in your little two-sentence narratives about what the left might think. But it also has to be something that then gives people things to do. It has to be not just simply telling people that this is how things work, but providing people with concepts, terms and tools that they can employ in thinking about their own towns, communities, streets and so forth and feel that they're able to get a grip on what's happening in their communities and have some sense of how uh, to respond. And then crucially, what it has to do is refute above all, I think, the sense that that the reaction narrative gives that there's no meaningful future. That the future is simply one that's already been colonised by neoliberalism, by liberal elites. We have to just get rid of them and return to something in the past. It has to absolutely be a narrative that that starts with, in a way that narratives normally wouldn't, its end point. That says this is the future that we can see, that could look in a certain kind of way, that answers some of the crises you experience in your life. Now let's go back and see why we haven't got that future, because these are the things that have prevented it. And here's what you can do to be part of what makes that future come about. Thank you.
3: Um,
6: Right. It's always really difficult talking to a room like this. And so I'm not going to ignore you if I don't look at you. And I'm not ignoring you if I don't look at you. But I can't twizzle my head and talk at the same time. So... If if we're talking about education as part of the narrative, I think education is such a complicated issue in this regard. And let me start with something. I saw Jeremy on television this morning, and he was on the Andrew Marr programme. I found it very uncomfortable grilling. I thought he did very well. But at the end, he said, as Jeremy does, we've got really big issues to solve in this country. And he went through industrial policy, housing, and so on. And I was waiting for him to say education. And actually, he didn't. And I find that 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 says something about something that's not being said even by the Corbyn narrative. So keep that on one side. Then went to a World Transformed meeting just now on a national education service, which was an absolute barnstorming meeting, in which I'm looking at the chair who was made it even more barnstorming than it might have been otherwise. And, you know, everybody's saying there's a crisis and things need to change. And, and so I'm sort of keeping these two different truths about what's going on now in my head. So but if I go back and, and think, what, what place does education have in our national narrative? I think a really interesting place to start is the post-war period the Attlee government, the time that, in a way, Corbynism looks to as an inspiring start to the modern era. And what's so interesting to me, and once I realised this, it made sense of a lot that happened after, is that you had two major institutions created. You had the NHS, formed in 1948, which remains, in a way that, I find incredible, a cherished central part of our national life. But you also had 1944, it was just before the general election, but it is part of that post-war settlement, free universal secondary education for the first time ever. But the thing to understand about it, which you probably all do, is that unlike the National Health Service, which for all its problems and privatisation and all the difficulties, Um, that have attended it. It's still seen as an inspiring unifier. That was because the NHS was set up as universal access. Education was set up to divide. And it was set up with the 11 plus and with grammars and secondary moderns. And I think that explains why there's still something toxic and divisive about education as a narrative, even to this day. And that's even without Theresa May trying to bring it back. So, I think if, when, by holding that in our mind, I think it explains a lot of, of what's happened since. Then, the second, that was my first point, the second thing I want to say is that the framing of, there's a disingenuous framing of the narrative around grammars, grammar schools, which we still have now. And the way it's been framed and presented, Particularly by the media and i don 't want to make cheap points, but let me because it 's always good. The media are the most tremendous problem in our um, education narrative, and without sounding like a, con- a paranoid conspiracy theorist, which I certainly can be at four in the morning when I was awake four in the morning it 's because there 's a reason why the leaders of our country, the leaders of our country, they are not using the, most of the schools that we 're talking about and They either didn't go or they're not sending their children there. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just that there's some kind of cultural gap. And I think it it means that they don't understand. And I think we can see the Gove period in that way. People who didn't understand taking over a system they didn't understand and trying to make it in the image of a system they did, which is the private and selective schools. But the disingenuous framing of the grammar secondary modern debate is this, that it was a chance for working class children, bright working class children to access the elite. And I think if we're going to talk about this story, we have to accept that there were some stories like that. There's no question about it. But if the real truth about it, then and now, there are still 164 grammars and Theresa May wants to expand them. And this is a real danger. Don't believe the the view that it's just a small thing, it's a real danger. The real truth about it was in fact spoken by Leila Moran of the Liberal Democrats last week. It is state-sponsored segregation. It's largely giving a separate and privileged space to the better off and often to the very affluent within our state system. And the more I think about our state system of education, the more I think about how it's been made to work, it's been made to work by allowing the middle class a separate space to working class families. And I think that is part of the narrative. Then the third thing I want to say, which is a very important part of the narrative, is why do we never, why does Labour now, or any of us, ever talk about what was probably the quiet, the most important, if administrative, revolution of the post-war period, which was comprehensive reform, where about 85% of the country moved from a system of dividing children up at 11, largely on class grounds, and moved to a system where everybody went to the same secondary school. Now, I accept this is a complicated story because there will always be people who will say, and I have sat at thousands of meetings where people say, I went to a crap comp. And comprehensive education has let me down and you know there's really complicated reasons why some local schools work and some local schools haven't and we've seen a revolution in understanding about teaching and learning and all those things but do we really think the answer to that is to go back to a system where you say to a 10 year old you're clever you're not and knowing how young people acquire cultural capital and how much it's tied in with family background and all the rest of it. That's obviously not the answer to go back. But a Labour has been embarrassed for 30 years by the comprehensive revolution that it's set in train. And I think it's time for Labour to have a different narrative about it, quite a sophisticated one, where they say this was the right move for society, but we've learned a lot about what we need to do. And it's a lot to do with resources. It's a lot to do with recognising that different children need to learn, you know, need different resources, and the disadvantaged need more. And in a way, New Labour got that bit. In that, although the private finance initiative meant that, you know, the state is now owes loads of money to private sector, the building, you know, the creation of really beautiful school buildings was a great development, and I would like to see a Corbyn government pursue that. So, my fourth and final point is. I think we're at a very important moment now. And that's why I'd like to have heard Jeremy acknowledge that by mentioning education as one of the things that, that, that will be a core part of his government. And I know that it, you know, he has said that the National Education Service will be a really important part. But I think there's some... There's, I spot some difficulty for Labour about it. But this is an important space, and I'll say why. In the 30 years since the comprehensive revolution, various governments, the Thatcher government, which decimated state education, New Labour, which did complicated things. It introduced, it it sort of carried on this mix of marketisation and central command, which I think has been a real problem, taking away from local government, which has been decimated. And then the Goviers, which put all of that on speed dial and really destroyed the system, which was what, was being said today. But in 2010, if you went anywhere as I did and said the Gove revolution won't work, it will increase inequality, it it will make money for people, it will bring in private interest, people would laugh at you and say, you just don't support standards. Nobody says that now. I think the public and even the media who are always behind the curve recognize that the Gove revolution has failed this is a good moment for jeremy corbyn to make an argument for something different the national education service is a good enough framework for it i think sometimes call it a new educational settlement i don't think it really matters the reason the nes is quite useful because it as a term it it harks back to the nhs and to this idea of a Great public service being a unifier, not a divider. So even though I sometimes think this is a bit atly, this is a bit post-war, hang on, we're in the 21st century, I still think it, 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 it's a useful term. But it is a time for boldness, and there's so many things that need to be done. But I've got one more yeah. thing to say, which is we tend to be obsessed with schools in this country because that is the middle-class narrative. Schools and um, secondary education and universities as your way into a class formation. But the National Education Service would look at all the parts of education, which, again, if we look back at the 60s and 70s, we were beginning to build up adult education, further education. Alison Wolfe, crossbench peer, no friend of Jeremy Corbyn, says further education is in tatters. Jeremy Corbyn recognises that. So there's a lot more to do than just start to judge and judge our schools differently fund them better and so on but it's a kind of now or never moment and it's very important that labor not only has the right policies but has a new narrative about education in order to persuade the nation about what needs to be done thanks Thank it's only
4: five pounds <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay all right thanks everyone and thanks for those uh fantastic contributions and they're really you're doing a great job chairing francis so i put together the session i didn't know francis was going to be this good at this I'm really <laughs> pleased um okay so i'll kind of follow one from both of those uh contributions um uh, Alan gave a really good um, account of the kind of emergent narrative from, from the right, from the sort of the far right, the alt-right, which which shades into the UKIP narrative, it's allied to the Trump narrative. It's worth, to some, you know, for a moment, kind of comparing it with the other narrative with which any uh, socialist narrative has to compete. That's the, the centrist modernizing narrative, which we're all very familiar, but which is still very powerful. It's still really the kind of dominant narrative in of institutions like the BBC. And that narrative said globalisation was inevitable, that if you didn't, if you, globalisation is inevitable, that we live or should live in an essentially meritocratic society in which everybody competes on the basis of their talent and their ability to work, and that the, the elite who rise to the top therefore deserve it. And, and that um, really anybody who doesn't recognise that is part of what Blair once called the forces of conservatism, whether on the left or, the, or, the, or they're the right. And what that narrative does, and the narrative that Alan describes, uh, does, is they explain a number of things that have to be explained to people. They explain the nature and the causes of economic dislocation. They explain it either as the consequence of unbridled immigration, or they explain it as a kind of positive thing, which is just something you have to live with if you're a sort of modernizer. But either way, they give an explanation of it. They explain cultural change. We've lived through an intense period of cultural change. They explain cultural change. If you're a Blairite moderniser, then you think that all of the cultural changes of the past 30 years are positive, and they've happened mainly because the the kind of enlightened technocratic elite has made them happen and because they're an effect of financial capitalism modernising the world for us. If you're a Conservative, they've happened because a kind of untrustworthy, you know, self-regarding metropolitan elite has forced them on people. But either way, there's an explanation of them. Um, it explains inequality. Again, you know, the conservative narrative explains inequality by saying that, um, you know, it's the fault, again, it's the fault of this self-serving elite um, that Alan has referred to. Again, the centrist narrative says that inequality is a good thing. It's what motivates people to strive for excellence. It's what motivates us all to compete in the market, in the great marketplace, which is the the labour market, and become the best people we can be. Now, the point is any kind of narrative from the left has to do the same work. It has to answer all of those things. It has to explain all of those things. And my concern is that the kind of prevalent narrative um, coming out of the party at the moment, it explains some of it, but it doesn't explain enough of it that the dominant narrative coming out of the Labour leadership, for now, is is about austerity. It's about why austerity was 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 a mistaken economic response to the 2008 economic crisis and its consequences. And everything that is said about that is correct, and everything that is said about that is valuable. But it doesn't speak to people who were suffering from many of these consequences for decades prior to 2008. It, does, it speaks primarily to people who are having a pretty good time before 2008, which is why it's people from that kind of class background who, who, who are the core of our movement and the core of our party. Now, it doesn't, speak to the, it doesn't do the work that the UKIP narrative does. of saying, look, this is what's gone wrong in your communities, not just in the past 10 years, but since the 70s. And any narrative we offer has to do that. It has to talk about several different things. It has to be prepared to talk about the consequences of neoliberalism, whether it wants to use that term and explain it to people, which is possible. As I always say, you know, I, there, there, are, there are whole countries in Latin America where every illiterate peasant knows what neoliberalism means. It's not impossible to teach people what a three syllable word means. Or you can use another language. I'm going to refer, You know, there was fantastic work done during the Scottish independence campaign by groups like Commonweal in kind of finding a popular language to talk to people about. Neoliberalism in. I'd recommend that work to anybody interested in these issues. Go look up Commonweal uh, on the internet. Uh, had a tremendous effect on public discourse. You know, I, had, I had old mates from the rave scene from Glasgow, never taken any interest in, in politics, like talking to me about neoliberalism yeah, as a result of this. But it has to talk about that. It also has to talk about the con- about the, the process of deindustrialisation and its consequences, which is not exactly the same thing as neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the process by which a very specific ideology of competitive individualism has been imposed on so many areas of public life. It's related to the process of de but it's not exactly the same thing. And why that's very important is because I think probably what we can't say to people, what we can't promise people, is that we're going to bring all the jobs back that have gone. We can't promise people we're going to just re-industrialise, because we're clearly not going to be able to do that. And I think it's it's something that's off, it's really really missed by a lot of people. I think that, that one of the, one of the things driving the Brexit vote, one of the, the, the things driving the kind of movement which which goes in, sometimes it manifests support for UKIP, sometimes it manifests support for the Tories, has been a genuine belief. It's a kind of magical thinking belief, but it's genuine amongst lots of kind of grassroots working class communities that somehow leaving the EU would facilitate reindustrialization, that somehow we would bring the jobs back. You go and talk to people in places like Doncaster, You'll hear this is what you will hear. Uh, and we have to have some kind of narrative about that, about what happened, about what was inevitable, about what wasn't. And our narrative has to be about the fact, I don't think it can claim that deindustrialization industrialization could have completely not happened. But it, but it has to stress the extent to which the way in which it was done in the 80s and 90s, was speci- especially in the 80s, was specifically done in order to undermine the historic basis of the labour movement, to undermine the political strength of the working class. That It didn't just happen by accident. I think we also have to have a narrative about democracy. This is something I've, you know, a lot of people... The standard belief amongst the Labour leadership, amongst the Labour movement, is that British people are not interested in hearing about democracy. They're not interested in constitutional reform. They're not interested in any of that. They're just interested in bread and butter issues like jobs. The response to that is very obvious. As I heard, as Anthony Barnett said to me yesterday, what was UKIP was a vote about an issue of sovereignty. UKIP, I mean, sorry, the, the, the referendum, the Leave vote was a vote on a constitutional issue. Uh, you know, I, I spent you know, the first half of the 80s uh, living on a, a really rough council estate in Skelmersdale in West Lancashire, a few miles from here. And, I, I, and I do, The people I grew up with there are perfectly interested in issues like democracy, like the nature of the Constitution. If you explain to them why it's relevant, you just have to say to people, look, it's not inevitable that we're governed by a self-serving elite of idiots. We have a set of institutions which are set up in a way to make that the most likely situation. And it could be changed, and it has been changed in the past. So I think our narrative has to include all of those elements. It has to include a real sense of the kind of history that we've lived through since the 1970s. And in fact, before that, our narrative has to really stress in a way often doesn't, I think publicly enough, the extent to which both democratic institutions and the institutions of the welfare state were all the products of working class struggle. They were all the products, of they were all the outcome of a social struggle. I mean, even an institution like the NHS, which you know, Melissa rightly um, mentioned, like we hardly, you know, the, who gets the credit for the NHS? It's it's Attlee, it's Beveridge, sometimes it's Nye Bevan, but we hardly ever sort of publicly, you know, refer to the fact that the NHS wouldn't have happened in the form Melissa described it if it hadn't been for the militancy of the South Wales miners. Like it wouldn't have happened because Bevan would not have had the clout in the Labour movement to get what he wanted, which Morrison didn't want, and, Nye, and Ernest Bevan didn't want. They all wanted a kind of I'm proposing should be clear from lot I've said now, is that it, it proposes putting forward a narrative which has to be not just critical of the Tories, but has to point out many of the problems caused by, you know, the, the British neo- neoliberalism in Britain begins when Dennis Healy and Jim Callaghan signed an agreement with the International Monetary Fund in 1975 to become the first country in the developed world to implement a structural readjustment programme of the kinds which were then imposed on third world countries for the next 10 years or so. That is the beginning of neoliberalism in Britain written, that's also the beginning of the reaction against progressive education. We all know about the legacy of New Labour. I understand why the Labour leadership and many of our MPs are squeamish about putting forward a narrative which, which is willing to lay some of the blame on, on members of our own party. But if we don't do that, we will never be able to offer those people, especially people in the de-industrialised regions, who are going to voting UKIP, a convincing narrative about what has happened to them and why they shouldn't blame immigrants, they shouldn't blame the EU, they should blame the city of London. That's it.
0: All right, so three barnstorming speeches there. I think, um, yeah, if, if we'd structured the session how we would like to, there would have been much more sort of small group work, but some of you relieved to hear that the this, that this space does not allow for that. So what we're going to do instead is I'm just going to give people a couple of minutes to turn to the person sitting next to you. And um, principally, this last part of the session, we've got quite a while now for discussion and points, and I'd like people to feel free to kind of... Um, be able to kind of come back on a lot of what was spoken about but what came up to me when people were talking were these sort of three main big headings of of, of how we structure the session because as you think about it you know narrative is huge in politics so when I looked at the title of the session I thought there's no way you're going to cover that in an hour and a half but we did do a rip-roaring ride there through three uh, really good speeches there Um, and I think the things that sort of jumped out to me and maybe what we can sort of think about how to structure the session in the, in the time we have left is firstly to think about the history. So when we're thinking about our narrative and part, of the half of the title of this session is um, how did we get here? So not just the history of recent decades and, and recent governments and what they've done to get us to this point, but also to have a kind of resonance to say the labour movement is long and we have a legacy and we have a history and we have a history of success as quite a few speakers have touched on, um, so what kinds, of, what parts of the history are particularly resonant for us now, or might be resonant for people uh, outside of the Labour movement and beyond? The second thing is um, how to construct a story. I mean, this is this is quite um, a, a sort of a, a tricky task in some respects. But it seemed to me that there were these key elements that kept jumping out. One is that, that has, the story has to have a logic to it. So it has to make sense. The different parts of the story can't just be mishmashed together. They've got to all have a relationship to each other. As in 2015, the Tories had a, a quite a, a coherent narrative, which all the pe- pieces fitted in to cre- create this big puzzle, which you know gave us the long-term economic plan. Um, and, and the other elements, I suppose, are, are the principles which lie underneath it. What, what is the story we're telling? What are the principles of which our movement is anchored? And I suppose then the final piece is really kind of the emotions that we're hoping to kind of... Um, to bring up and to ha- how, how we respond to that. Without getting lost in emotion, we have to respond to people's emotions, to people's feelings of loss and decline and frustration, but also to people's feelings of hope and optimism and positivity and nostalgia, to a certain extent as well, that's got to be looked at as well. And then the third thing is, um, how do we reach beyond na- labour with this narrative? There's no good as telling each other what that story should be. Uh, we re- that has to be a narrative with, uh, as Jem says, and a couple of other people, You know, it really has to reach beyond these circles, and it has to be something that people can make sense in the context of their own lives. Um, and partly for me, that's why that 2015 economic narrative for the Tories was so powerful, was because they kept linking it back to the economies like a budget. Now, we all know that is a load of cause wallop, but it did speak to people. People thought, yeah, I get that. And it also, as a secondary point about that, made people feel a sense of control. They, they felt a sense of understanding. I get it, you know, I, I get it. And so I get it at a national level as well. And so maybe our narratives can begin to look at that as well. Like if we look after other people within our own circles and are within our own communities, why are we not looking to do that at a national level as a national community? Collectively, you know, it makes sense for people to be looking after their own community. How does that work at a national level? These kinds of questions. So history, story, and reach. Uh, Those are quite big topics, I understand, but maybe you want to just spend five minutes talking to the person next to you and those around you, um, digest a little bit of what you heard, and then we're going to come back for some discussions, comments from the floor, and we should have about half an hour for that. So thanks guys, I'll bring you back in five. There's a there's a lot there's a lot of chatter happening, so hopefully you're you you haven't already left the room. Um, mentally speaking, and hopefully a lot of that was on topic. Um we're gonna hear now some some comments, some questions to the panel and thoughts from the floor. Um the way I thought I'd do it is quite a standard way of just taking a few points at once. I'll probably try and take three. Um uh a couple of things to say, you, you're, ha- you're very welcome to make comments as well as ask questions. Please try and keep it fairly brief because we have quite a few people in the room and as you can hear, people have ideas. Um, so we want to get in as many people as possible. And we've got um, just under half an hour for this. Um, so I'll take them in groups of three and then we can come back out again. Uh, so i will take the very enthusiastic man there at the back. I'm sorry, also we've got a roving mic. So if you could just wait for the mic to come to you. Um, where is my mic person? Where's the roving? Oh, wait, sorry, we have it. <laughs> sorry, massive fail there. Where is, um, I, I had somebody who was going to rove for me, but maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll just be a, a roving commentator.
3: Thanks very much for that. And uh, just a, a quick comment before a question, going back to Melissa's point. I was running the NUT's PR operation at the time of Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph. And we had been let down by Callaghan, who said there are problems with education, but he didn't have any solutions. And it was at the coming, at the end of the Keynesian long boom. And the economics didn't make any sense to him. And he listened to Peter Jay, his son-in-law, and he came up with all. He basically stated the problem without offering any ways out of it. And we came up with the slogan at the time in the NUT, our children, our future. That fell on stormy ground, because it was also Reagan and Thatcher doing the Cold War. And internal union politics prevented that happening. But I think we have to have this dimension about thinking about our children and our future. The nostalgia element, I think we can touch on that with older people, because when I go around doing Orgreave gigs and older people talk about what happened in the past, they're willing to say, you can joke about terrible things that happened in the past, builders falling off scaffolding and no health and safety, and you can say, that was the good old days, wasn't it? And they know perfectly well that there were some good things, but they know there were some terrible things. And I think that requires us to be honest And I think, to be honest about our history, so we were left with silly Liam Byrne at the end of our government, saying there was no money left, which was a perfect opportunity for the Tories then to come up with this picture that you've got an absolutely idiotically stupid thing to say. And I think we've got to think about our children, think about the future, and then you can begin to construct a system which says, How do we build a future for our children? What does that require in the structure of our economics? What does that need in terms of our apprenticeships, of the education of students, in the education of nurses for our NHS? But you've got to have that future always before you and not get bogged down. Understand the past, apologize for it, but also have a vision that looks positively to the future.
0: Oh, that's a great point, and, I, and one of my campaigner friends always points out that children born today will see the next century, which I think is a wonderful way of thinking about vision. Um, I promised the mic to this gentleman here, I think. I can give you a hand. It would be great if we had one, more than one mic, wouldn't it? I think. Austerity.
1: Thank, thank you very much. Agreeing with everything I heard, how do we go forward from here? And one of the things I want to suggest is that in the absence of the Labour Party policy process delivering the goods, we deliver the goods. We, the world transformed, momentum, whoever, produce discussion papers out of the talks we had today, 1,500, 2,000 words, as a paper saying, this is what we need to do, this is where we need to go in education, this is why it matters. Let us put an alternative on the agenda, because otherwise these Great meetings uh,
0: just run into the sands. Yeah, it's a very construct- constructive and really useful there. I'll take this mic. Um, I'm going to give this mic to a woman.
7: Hi. Hi. Um, I was very taken with what you said, um, Francis, at the end about we look, uh, we look after each other in a community, how come that doesn't happen at national level? And I wonder if there's something that the left should be saying more about care. We've, the narrative would go something like, we've become such an uncaring community. How come we don't care for the people who care for people in our communities? What about the teachers? What about the nurses? So a slight move away from the paid work It's kind of slightly in response to the deindustrialization. Care is actually so important, and what's happened? Why aren't we doing more of it?
0: Fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. And nice and snappy. So um, if you just hold it, pause it there. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, who wants to respond to that? If you could just pick up on one or two
6: points so we can get back to the audience. Oh, God. Sorry, I can't help saying this, but I'm not writing 200 words because I've just written it. <laughs> just to say, when you've spent that amount of time saying this is what we might do, it is worth pointing that out. Uh, so... Um, yeah, I, just your thing about... I think history is important, so I want to connect a number of things. I think that labour leadership has to come to terms with our history, because there's lots of mistakes in our own history. And the thing is, it's great to be honest, but you can't really be honest in every space. So I, I'm just thinking about where do you have your honest conversations? But I think a good political narrative does all that work with friends, um, not behind closed doors, but with friends, and then develops a narrative for the, for the country and that is forward-looking. And we were just talking while everyone else was talking about There's a particularly with education, it really can be socialism as common sense. And, and I, I think with a good narrative, you could bring a lot of people behind you investing more in education, caring more for children who aren't academic. You know, 40% of children are failing their SATs at the end of primary school. Most of them, I think 46% of children on free school meals are being told at 11 that they're not fit for secondary school. Now, there's going to be a lot of people in the country who are going to say, that's not a good way to run a system. So there's all sorts of ways that you can make this a narrative that appeals in a broader way and I think you have to do that and I'm just going to make a final comment it's, I, I, you know there's so many venues where things get discussed and they represent different communities this isn't that so the Labour Party is in Parliament most of the time the Labour leadership and you think about Parliament you are you, you want to lock most of them up, but they're they're, they're in Parliament, you know, and you're opposite, you know, go to Parliament, you're opposite the dispatch box with people with a totally different narrative, and I think we underestimate, it's not to excuse anything, but I think we underestimate that process and the effect it has. I've seen it on generations of Labour MPs who the left will say lose their courage, but I think we need to think about it in a different way, and maybe they need more help and need to do more homework, I don't know, but... Do you know? Rather than being told they're betraying, and then it's 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 a difficult job. It's just a thought. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, we'll
5: go. um, so I won't respond to the questions one by one, but sort of um, just build on something and connect to one of them, really. So if if we take the concept of narrative uh, seriously, then uh, one thing is kind of missing. Francis's was really helpful, kind of summary about history and kind of story with the logic and the emotions. Uh, but narratives have characters, uh, and one of those characters Jeremy talked about, who are the villains in the story, uh, but they also have to be the people who are going to be the you know, who fight the villains, or different kinds of characters within that. And the key thing about a political narrative is it's not like a narrative on a stage or on a TV screen where you just watch it. A political narrative casts you in some particular role in the political historical story that you're trying to tell. It has to give people a role. Um, Now, the challenge there is you can't just invent any old role out of nowhere and think that people will go along with it. It has to connect to real social groups, real social experiences, to what people are um, doing and thinking. And that's why I think the point about care is really important. But I would say it's not quite that the narrative is of care. It's that you've got a situation there, a real situation, all different kinds of ways, and people doing things, experiencing things. What role are we going to cast them in in the narrative that we're constructing to talk about what the future is going to be. So it's thinking about that little twist on it. Uh, so you know, how, how do you incorporate that into the story? And I think what you're, what you're gesturing at can be part of that. You can say, you, because you've got that value of care, you've got a story about what the country does care about and hasn't cared about and who it's forgotten about, and then you've got all these people that in the frontline services, but also in their personal lives, performing that caring role, cast them as key people in that story. <coughs>
4: yeah okay i mean i mean one thing that it relates to what Francis said actually and i think it relates to things several people have said is we do an effective narrative also sort of appeals to people Emotions in a broad way. It to a broad range of emotions. Like it can't. It, it has to appeal to people's positive emotions, people's sense of hope, people's desire to care, people's sense of togetherness. It also has to apply to appeal to people's sense of anger, people's sense of resentment, to some extent, people's fear. And the thing about that, I mean, the right are better, are often better than we are. I think, are appealing to all of those at the same time, and we, we have to do all of them at the same time. And a lot of what I talked about was really about appealing, you know, appealing to people's negative emotions, but the, the positive. Have to be part of it as well, but but you know all of it has to be part of it. Um, I think I'd say um, I think the issue of care is really important, but I, but I also think we have to say you know part of our narrative has to be that that care is that care is work. I mean, it requires work. It's not it's not just something that people want to do, and it's something that I mean, it is it's really good, it's really important. But I think, and I do think I mean when i when I'm talking to ordinary people. Which uh, doesn't doesn't happen very often because I grew up I grew up near here and I've lived in East London for 25 years. So I haven't really met a Tory since like 1984, but um, <laughs> which is a deliberate choice. Um, but you know, there's there's almost, there's no more effective rhetorical strategy than to talk about nurses to say why what kind of a society pays a nurse like a fraction of what they pay. you know a middle management executive what nobody thinks that's justifiable nobody thinks it is so I think that is a really powerful strategy and I think the point about children is really important in the the sort of reading discussion group we're having this morning about talking about the ways in which neoliberal ideology works to construct a sort of common sense for people one of the points I made and it's something that, that I've observed quite a lot especially since becoming a parent actually that people's concern about children is a real point of vulnerability for sort of for bourgeois ideology for neoliberalism, people intuitively understand, you know, even people who, you know, even people who are Tories, like they intuitively understand you can't let that shit happen to children. You can't let capitalism get hold of children, their consciousness too young, or they'll become psychotic. One of one of com- one of the first campaigns Compass ever ran was a little campaign against against the commercialization of childhood. And they got some traction, they got some legal. Uh, some traction in Parliament over restricting advertising to children, restricting sweets at uh, till, uh, you know, tills in supermarkets and stuff, and I think there's a real point of there's a real point of, of vulnerability there that people do intuitively understand that children have to be protected, and that. And it is a real. It is a narrat- Something on which you can base a narrative. Like if you don't want, if you don't want this kind of life for your children, like why do you want it for anybody? Like if you don't want neoliberalism for your for the culture your children inhabit, why do you want it for for them when they turn eleven or twelve or fifteen or twenty?
0: That's great. We're going to do one final round. Um, I promised the mic to here. Um, let's go in there. There we go. Thank you.
7: Yeah, hi. Um, Well, Michael and I had a good little discussion, so that was a good five minutes there, and um, we concluded that in terms of uh, historical narrative, there's really been two periods, which was the origins of the Labour Party, and we saw some very good things happening, which we want to applaud and celebrate and continue with, not least... uh, NHS and I'll come back to Melissa's point and then secondly a period where we want to separate ourselves so it seems to me which was the Blair area and where things started to go completely wrong and so I think there's this clear narrative point there to be drawn out that we're separating ourselves from the latter and going back to the former in terms of um, you know big picture story and then it also strikes me that we've got a um, almost, um, to be cliched, um, think global, act local story here, where we need to support the NHS. We need a national education service. Uh, John McDonald's talking about a national investment bank that we need, no matter what we think about the city, We need financial infrastructure. We need to reform financial infrastructure. We need investment policies. And we need to renationalise certain areas and so on. And so we need a uh, superstructure like those within which to operate. And then we need to go really down to the local level. And uh, talking about Norwich and Norfolk, I mean, one of the areas I'm familiar with is Sheringham, which has seen a massive revitalisation recently, partly thanks to, um, you know, frankly, people staying home for holiday, but also partly because they've got this local council that's really focused on, you know, rebuilding the promenade, having festivals, supporting people, blah blah And these sorts of stories need to be encouraged. And there were some fantastic female councillors yesterday at the women's conference getting up and speaking about things that they want to do and things that they can do. And, you know, these people need to be supported very, very strongly and celebrated, these new city mayors who are coming along. And so we need to really focus on these local infrastructures and support them and make that part of their
0: story, I think. That's a great point. Uh, I'll take takes. Keen guy at the back. Sorry, s- stripes, I feel a little bit like question time. That that gentleman with the spectacles. <laughs> Only person who ever says spectacles. Uh,
3: uh,
2: so I, I just kind of wanted to make a, a bit of a critical comment about the language around narratives. Um, and I think it's worth I think it's worth bearing in mind that there are some reasons why some narratives are attractive. And we kind of just can't make one in kind of a frictionless void and then hope that in some way, people are interested in the narrative enough and they can be convincing in that way. And I think, I appreciate the sessions about narratives, but um, it's quite often we, we hear the word narrative a lot and we don't hear the word policy very much. Although the lady down here just mentioned lots of really concrete things that are happening in people's lives, that in some way can be connected to a way of thinking about the world, which then make that way of thinking about the world quite positive and popular and can draw people in. So, I mean, thinking about education, I'm a teacher, um, like one of the things that is really disappointing about the current Labour leadership is this kind of hole that has opened up in education policy. And Leila Moran and the Lib Dems are doing very, very well. I think she's you know, suggesting things that are very popular, I think, for teachers. But I think one of the things that Labour could really get on and do, and it's a lot in Melissa's books, I'd highly recommend. Um, <laughs> that, you know, if we think about connecting with the kind of people who voted UKIP who used to vote Labour, one of the things that seemingly has been lost, and we've talked about at the end of, or the death of decent FE. Um, we think about how to properly fund and organize further education for people who aren't necessarily thinking about going to university then that would be something really concrete that people think actually Labour are going to do something for my children I mean, people mention kids here as well and then in a way the whole way of Labour's thinking about the world becomes positive for them because they think I've got something that I wouldn't otherwise have had from this other way of thinking about the world which just says throw the immigrants out for example
0: yeah that's great and I'm really positive thank you um having a round of applause. Um, yeah, indicate indicate for me. This gentleman here with the hat on. Thanks. I've got time.
1: Um, this is a belated contribution to your um, request for slogans uh, earlier. Um, it's, it's encouraging all this talk about narrative. So I was thinking of some combination of um, Bill Clinton uh, so um, it's not the economy is stupid, it's the narrative.:
0: It's <laughs> a great one. Thanks. <laughs> linking in together. with this guy on the steps here? go here. Yeah,
1: um, I want to go back to Melissa's point about comparing the NHS um, and the founding of the NHS and universal education. And uh, it struck me that um, when you go into a hospital uh, you 're treated exactly the same, well, theoretically anyway, uh, everyone 's treated on an equal level. Immediately they enter the portals of the hospital, the doctors not discriminating what class you 're from, what educational background, what race, gender, etc. Um, and i 've been a teacher for thirty years, but i 'm really kind of struck by the fact that when you go into a school, almost immediately you 're segregated. Uh, your there's kind of delineations even within comprehensive education and I went through comprehensive education um, and I just feel that there has to be and I've also taught for 20 years in as well so um, and I realized that when when I first started teaching in FE um, people were talking about it being the Cinderella sector and that was 30 years ago. Um, and it doesn't feel like, there, has been, there have been transformations, there have been progress, there has been a massive progress, but it's kind of stark to hear that you're saying that FE is still in that situation after 30 years. Um, and Labour really have to deal with the kids who are failing, the kids who are not succeeding, the kids who are not getting through the system with qualifications of any kind. That's yeah, a, that's the thing I want to say.
0: Thank you. I think it's a good example from from the kind of non-discrimination element. I uh, would we'll take one here and one at the back, and then and then I think that's final comments from the whole, from the panel.
6: Thanks. Um, I I keep wondering um, how dangerous it would be to mention what we would talk about uh, of home in the northeast of England, and that's Margaret Thatcher. I mean, as far as we're concerned, it's a bloody woman. That caused all these problems, and what we need to do is put things right that she um, that she damaged. But
7: I can um, I can appreciate that this is a dangerous area. But I just wondered what your thoughts were.
0: Mm, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna take this guy back here. Sorry.
8: <laughs> oh yeah. Um, So it's been really interesting to hear the discussions around how we use history and narrative. And um, I know we sort of began the talk by suggesting that perhaps we need to use less of a callback to history and more of a kind of production of of the image of the future that we want to achieve. Um, And it's been interesting to see how that's developed throughout the talk. But um, we were talking in the interlude about um, how there are different histories. Obviously there's the history of the state and the history of... The conditions of the country in the past and the ways that can be idealised, but I think um, one one person mentioned that Tribune magazine yesterday made a good point about history as a history of the movement and the history of the kind of collective power of the working class when it when it can achieve a, a certain level of unity, and that seems like a very strong history that that directly relates to the future um, more than the history of the Labour Party which we need to uh, you know apologise for or the history of you know, the, the system as, as it has exi- it has existed and all the you know, poverty that goes with it. Um and I think it also relates to perhaps the more emotional components of the narrative that we that we're seeking to produce, um, by the very nature of what collective action is. Mm-hmm. And I guess my suggestion is like we obviously we can't treat narrative in the same way that the ruling class uses narrative because it isn't a game to us that is detached from everyday reality. In fact, Surely the strategy we need to be using is one that produces narrative through collective action. And it'd be really interesting to see how the Labour Party strategizes more on how we can produce action and then use that to spin off narratives that come from from below rather than a single narrative from above.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. (laughs) That's a really good, good point to end on. It's just kind of what Melissa and I were also talking about, that the idea of democratisation in the narrative construction. So how, how we actually bring more people in to tell their own story, to be part of, sort of weave it together into kind of this nice tapestry of a collective narrative, which then you feel kind of ownership over. It's not someone's just told you the story, but actually you've helped in the telling of it, and I think that's quite powerful. Um, so just final comments from the floor. Uh, snippy, final sentence things for people to go out the door with.
5: <laughs> really, um, well, okay, well, uh, so not very snippy, but firstly, just to pick up on the point made here about sharing him in Norfolk, I think that does connect to some of the things that other people said because what you 're partly drawing attention to is that there are different experiences, histories, and traditions, and demands in particular places, and part of what 's going on in terms of political narrative isn 't just the national story it's allowing people to connect to the particular histories of the places they're in ex-fishing places, mining, whatever it might be, and drawing that into their, under, their explanation of what's gone wrong and what you therefore do, how you build or rebuild on that particular experience. I think that's absolutely right, and that opens up to this question of there are different kinds of narratives and in different places and different moments. There's different things we might want to, to have for ourselves in the context of the labour movement and different things we might want to be presenting more broadly. But I do want to pick up on the point from the school teacher over here who expressed anxiety about the term narrative. I fully share these anxieties, precisely because I think it it, it does it can slip into an idea of politics uh, which was proven to be very unsuccessful. I think in the New Labour years, in which politics is just about the story you tell, it's just about the presentational issues, and that's not true at all. It is about ha, partly about, as someone said, policies, how you respond to the situations people are in, but also how your um, explanation of what you want to do connects to real experiences that real people have. So I would have preferred, us to as it, a bit of an academic thing to say, rather than have narrative sort of argument, yeah, what is our argument, than to understand that the argument is sort of a narrative. An argument is, here's the situation in which we find ourselves, here's how we got here, here's how we need to respond to that, here's what we go and do as a result of it. I think it's been clear about that sequence of things. So part of that means we have to do some ideological work to get to the position where we can say, this is the situation we're in. But once we've done that, then it becomes, now we've got to do that and, now, and then that crucial bit, here's what we do and that includes, to pick up on your point, what you do, what you can do about this and then you're creating a new situation. You've written yourself into the story, which is not the story, you've written yourself into history and then you can build on that. Thank you. <laughs>
4: Okay yeah thanks um i i agree about the problem with narrative there's a there's there, indeed it's um i mean you know in in other contexts i do often find myself saying to people it's not just about the story you know it's about whether the story connects in some way with people's lived sense of their material interests and i think that's really You know that's what I mean. Really, you know, effective political campaigning is about three. It's about it is about narrative, but it's about and it's about policy, and it's about and it's about how your policy is going to advance people's material interests. I don't just mean in an individual sense, but collectively. You know, we all have multiple sets of interests. I have interest as a father, as a worker, as you know, lots of other things. but i think um and I think I think that's really important because i, d- I think that you know the i, I do th- I've been saying this since I was a teenager really that the left you know the left far too often falls back on a moral discourse you know, as I said earlier and doesn't you know it doesn't talk to it doesn't give people you know an account of how you you're just going to be materially better off. Paying more tax, but getting better public services than having crap public services. We tell people, "Oh, we should have public services because it's nice, because it's good for poor people, because it's all together." You don't, don't just tell people they'll be, be literally better off. You know, literally it's physically better off. I think that's really important, I think um, that sort of ties to this, this issue about collective power. Of course, it's very important. Uh, to talk about you know collective power and to talk about that that is both you know central to our history and our possible future. I'd also I'd link that to some of the comments earlier about Im- emotions because one of the things often when thinking about the, the extent to which you also have to sort of connect with people's negative emotions, people's stoicism, people's masochism. I sometimes think sometimes we something you have something that the left that's implicit in the left's theory of history, but which we don't often make explicit to people is look. No one else is going to do it for you. No one is going to save you. Like only we ourselves can build the society that we want. And I mean, part of the promise of, of New Labour, actually, was that this enlightened class of technocrats would empower us all just as consumers, which would mean, you know, our relationship to public services would be we get to choose a hospital, we get to choose a school, but we wouldn't really have to do anything else. Now, the, the left tradition is to say, no, actually, you want a good school, you want a good hospital, you've probably got to get involved, you've probably got to go to meetings, you've probably got to be part of actually organising it. And that's kind of a drag, it's kind of hard. But I think to some extent we have to be, you know, we have to be kind of hard-edged about these things and say to people, look, that's the only alternative, that's the only option if you want the outcomes that you want. The only, out- the only- no one will do it for you and everyone who tells you they will do it for you, whether they're a bureaucrat or a boss or, or someone sending you something is, is just lying to you. And, that's, and uh, that I think we have to be not afraid of kind of owning that part. You know, people, I always end up saying this when people, so people quote back at me that line about socialism will never come because there's, you know, there's not enough evenings in the week for people to attend that many meetings. You know, it re- requires too many meetings. And I say that's one of the things we've got to say to people. Yeah, it's tough. You, wanna, you, wanna, you want a better society? You've got to go to meetings. Sorry, it's boring. You've got to do it. Well, let's argue for a shorter working week so we've got time to go to meetings. <laughs> let's argue. But... But, but the meetings aren't going to stop. And um, I think um, I would, I'd finally, I mean, I think I, I want to just, uh, I was thinking, I wanted to say this just because for some reason it was completely weird coincidences this morning. Um, I was having a WhatsApp conversation with uh, one of my best friends who's French and his kids are going to go to secondary schools and he's finding the whole secondary system completely confusing in this country and and I've agreed that I'll I'll sit down and have a chat with him and his partner and explain it all to them. So I was having to think about well, what is the function of education and and it really struck me that we still haven't actually broken and we're going to talk about this a bit in the the meritocracy reading reading group session tomorrow morning actually. um, we, have, we still haven't broken with the situation which obtained in uh, you know, uh, the post war period when we still, we basically accept the, own, the function of secondary education in this country primarily is just to decide who gets to go to university and who gets to go to what university. Now, it used to be that that was decided when you were eleven, and grammar school was a direct route to university. Now we think it's okay for that just to be decided at eighteen. But still, we basically, you know, middle-class culture in this country accepts that you have to have a totally hierarchical and selective university system, which is not a, f- a fact of nature. It's not how it works in every country, uh, and that the, the only real purpose of secondary education is to, is to make that selection happen. And we're never gonna ha- we're never gonna get the kind of focus on FE that we need until we can break with that, because FE is all always going to be an afterthought as long as you think that really secondary education is just the thing that is leading up to the selection process at a level time so we really have to break with that fundamentally and again i would i would say um, you know melissa's doing really important work and, and i would encourage everyone to read the book as well to um to uh, in and um, but this is a challenge and, and i think this is this is going to be a real front of struggle for us over the next couple of years because the the, the very deep investment that, it, that even even your kind of average middle-class kind of soft-left Labour Party member still has in the idea that their status as a middle-class professional is authorised and legitimate because they did really well in their A-levels. is really, really deeply ingrained, and it will take ideological work to challenge that. Can I, can I say
6: something? The, there's a winding up sign, and we're going over 30 seconds. What can we learn from Michael Gove? What we can learn from Michael Gove is is narrative plus boldness of policies. Actually, nobody's mentioned tuition fees and Labour's promise in 2017. That was a hugely important moment. It showed boldness and it changed the political landscape nationally. So the narrative is important. Labour's got to have a porous democratic narrative that is affected by collective action. And quite honestly, anybody who's followed the history of Parliament knows that collective action always informs politics it it would be ridiculous to say it doesn't but so it's narrative plus policies and the two together are just we mustn't forget that and also i just don't agree with you that everyone has to go to meetings i think it's the job of government to provide services and most people haven't got the time to go to meetings and no we shouldn't no no give them the time to look after the people they love and to have a good life and go to a meeting if they've got time
0: yes thank you very much for coming folks um (laughs) final things to say are uh You can get Melissa's book here, join Compass, um, and very much thank you to the World Transformed and to the people who were taking this mic around.